welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Welcome to part six of our series that we're in the midst of called No Ordinary Family. I certainly just want to encourage any person, if you're here for the first time, or maybe you've just been here in dribs and drabs over the last little while, maybe you've just been coming in the evening, I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to jump on the computer and download the MP3 or iTunes um, version of the messages for this series. It's been a great series. I really have been so inspired by hearing the other guys as they share. I've been inspired as I've been um, preparing to share what I share. And it's just, it's just really been great. Tone just preached an absolute cracker this morning. Actually feeling a little bit intimidated tonight, actually, because of that. Not that we're competing, but it's just, it's just a hard act to follow. You know, we're on the same side. We're, we're all in it together. But um, I feel like when I came back from Hillsong, actually, just having healed those guys and then coming preach here, I was like, oh, man. So well done, Tony. It was awesome this morning. It really was outstanding. And um, yeah, so we're, we're in the midst of the book of Ruth. We're up to about halfway through chapter two. And the story thus far, for those who don't know the book of Ruth, is simply this. It starts with a guy and his girl, uh, and a guy called Elimelech and his wife Naomi, who head off with their two boys because of a famine in Israel. They move to the neighbouring country of Moab. And while they're there, tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. And so you've got Naomi and her two boys in a foreign land. Um, over the next little while, the boys get married. They marry, uh, one marries a young lady called Ruth, another one a young lady called Orpah. And they, um, they basically live there for another 10 years and then tragedy strikes again and both of the, the men left in the family are again taken out. And so you have these three widows who are in a strange land, well, strange for one of them, and um, really fending for themselves. And we see that news comes that um, the famine which had driven Naomi out of Israel has come to an end and God has provided again for Israel. And so there's a decision to be made. And so Naomi and Ruth head back to Israel while Orpah stays back in Moab. And we see that they arrive back in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is starting. And this morning or last week, we started to have a look at um, just some of the, the, the providence of God. And we've been having a look at some of the decisions that people make and some of the impacts that those decisions have. And Tone, this morning, uh, we, we met, we, we looked at the fact that um, Ruth had just decided to go out into the field that he obviously needed to earn a living. And so Ruth decides to go out on behalf of Naomi and herself and to do some gleaning, to try and just follow along behind the barley harvesters and just see what she can pick up along the way behind them, hope to find favour and eke out an existence, basically get enough for, for, of a meal for that day and maybe for the next day and they just sort of live hand to mouth for a little while. And so that's where we were this morning and then we, we, we um, met the owner of the field, a guy called Boaz. And Tone spoke to us uh, really, really well about this man, Boaz, in a, in a message entitled Modelling Manhood. And I would so strongly encourage people to get that because I think it's something for us men to live up to, the example of Boaz. But it's also something, I think, for ladies to, to have a look to as well in terms of you know, the man in your life. Because you don't want to marry an idiot. You really don't. <laughs> you don't want to marry someone who, who is um, not going to protect you and not provide for you and not look out for you. You really want someone who is like Boaz in terms of his stature, in terms of his, in terms of his manhood. And so tonight we're going to continue on from um, 
Ruth chapter 2, and I'm just going to read three verses tonight. I'm reading from verse 14. So if you can, um, we just continue on really from where Tone left off this morning. Um, Boaz has met with Ruth. Uh, He's noticed her. He just happened to rock up at the time that she was there. He noticed that she was there asked some questions about her, introduced himself to her. They had a bit of a conversation. He, he, he welcomed her into, into the field. He said, look, you're welcome to come and glean here. You'll be safe here. You'll be protected, etc., etc." And at mealtime, in verse 40, it says, Boaz said to her, Ruth, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers this, uh, among the sheaths, sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. And so this morning or this evening, I want to just pull out a few things from those few short verses. And I'm just entitling it by way of a subtitle, if you like, Living Above the Law. Living Above the Law. Many people in our society today consider themselves to be above the law, and that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, that's got a very negative connotation. It's kind of like, well, the law doesn't apply to me. I can do what I like, um, and, and the law is for other people, but not for me. So that's considering yourself above the law. But I want to look at Boaz because I believe he's a man who actually lives above the law. What do I mean by that? Well, I simply mean this: is what is the law? Well. The law is something that has been put in place, I guess. It's an acknowledgement, first and foremost, of our sinfulness, the fact that we need some restraints, we need some boundaries in our life, and it's there really to help us to live with a measure of security in life. But we should never, ever be deceived into thinking that the law is the pinnacle of behaviour or attitudes in society. Okay, the pinnacle is not. It's really the bottom line. Okay, many people think, oh, I'm obeying the law, I'm a good citizen. No, no, that's just baseline behaviour, all right? That's, that's baseline relationship stuff, okay? You don't kill someone, that's great. <laughs> you don't steal from them, excellent. But it's not really living in the place that God would have us to live. Okay, you think about, you know, you could, you could um, outlaw divorce, and certainly in the past that was the case where, where divorce was illegal, um, and that, that's cool. That provides a measure of protection, I guess, for children and families and all that sort of thing. But it's, it's nowhere near on the same sort of par as actually living in the midst of a healthy, happy marriage, is it? It's a poor substitute to just have to live according to the law. Okay, we see that Jesus came and he said, look, I'm not here to, in Matthew chapter 5. I'm not here to um, abolish the law. I'm actually here to fulfill the law. And we see that his whole life was a demonstration of what, the, what it was to actually live above the law. He said things like, you know, you've heard that it was said, um, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Well, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he takes the law, which people thought they were quite good if they could you know, live to, to a measure of that. And he almost doesn't abolish it, but he just takes it to a whole other level. And lifts it right up really, really high. And I just want to just have a look at a few things in Boaz's life because I think he models some things tonight that, that just demonstrates the whole idea of living above the law, not just living at the lowest common denominator, not just doing what society expects or says we have to do, but seeing that and raising it. And so the first thing I want to have a look at um, this morning is the fact that he demonstrates acceptance. You see, this, this book was written about 3,000 years ago and it it's written, um, I guess, as an addendum to the book of Judges. 
And the thing about the book of Judges, as Tone mentioned this morning, is that it says everyone, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit in his own eyes. So what that says to me is this is a time after the Old Testament law had been given. Okay, this was the commandments and all the other um, accompanying laws that, that really gave some quite specific instructions as to how people were, were to live. Okay, and how, to, how they were to treat one another and so on and so forth. It was quite prescriptive. And there was a lot of protections in there as well for, for the poor and etc. But I think if you were living in this time as a poor or disadvantaged person, you probably would have suffered a lot because people were using the law to suit their own ends. If you were powerful, if you were rich, if you had a, a large family or a large army, I, I don't think you probably cared too much about the law in those days. You just did what you could. You applied the law when it suited you, you know, maybe to get taxes off of people or you know, to get people to pay you stuff or whatever or, to, um, you know, or else you just ignored the law when it suited you as well. But in the midst of that situation, we see this guy called Boaz, and he's a standout. And the first thing that I see in him, and we've already kind of looked at it this morning, but just this whole idea of he demonstrates acceptance. Now, why is that an issue of the law for me? Well, it's basically this, because if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, it says this, No Ammonite or Moabite, now Ruth was a Moabite, okay, she was from the country of Moab, or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, a sorcerer, to pronounce a curse on you. And if you know the story of Balaam and Balak, and you know, that was the Moabites that were supposed to be extending brotherly kindness to the Israelites. They just didn't do that. In fact, they called down a curse. And um, ultimately what they did was they intermixed with the Israelites and they caused them to fall into sexual immorality. And... and they just brought carnage into the nation of Israel. And so God says this thing, you're not to have any Moabites or any Ammonites welcomed in your assembly. That's the law. Boaz would have known that. And I can only just imagine some poor Moabite guy or girl rocking into an Israelite camp. Some pious, legalistic, zealous, Bible-thumping Israelite who knew that scripture. And I would not want to be that Moabite. I can just imagine him knowing also, you know, cursed is he who's hung on a tree and the Bible says cursed is any Moabite. We're going to hang him from a tree because that's what the Bible says to do. So that was the law. And that's really applied, that could have and should have been really applied literally to Moabite, to, to Ruth, a Moabitess, if we were to take that at face value. And so what happened when Ruth wanders into Boaz's field? I, I believe that one of two things probably happened. Maybe Boaz was just smitten by this woman. Maybe he just fell head over heels in love with her and he thought, to hell with the law, I'll do whatever I can to, to, to snag this young lady, to get her as my wife. That's possible, but I don't think it's likely from what we read and heard about this morning. I think what really is more likely to have happened is he weighed up the seemingly plain letter of the law as Allah, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 to 5, and he then put that within the context of the broader scope of Scripture. What do I mean by that? And, and I think this is something that we all need to do and need to understand because there's so often little bits of Scripture that we can, we can hold on to dogmatically and use them to exclude people or to set our course in life, but if we miss the bigger picture, we miss out altogether. 
And so, you know, you think about, he, he had this scripture that said, exclude the Moabites from your assembly, but he then had to take it away, and I believe he would have put it in the bigger context of scripture, which we go right back to Genesis chapter 12, we have a promise from God himself to Abraham. And does anyone know what that promise said? You might, it's a promise to, for the nations, it's a promise for, a, for a, 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 some descendants. It's a promise that his descendants would become a great nation. And ultimately it says that your descendants will become a blessing to all nations. And so God's plan was always an inclusive plan, not an exclusive plan. So that, that law could have been applied exclusively, but Boaz knew something of the bigger picture of God's heart, which was the inclusive. And so he wasn't put off by that law. Maybe he thought about the situation with Jericho and Rahab. Because Jericho was a city that was um, destined for destruction. God said, kill them all. Don't leave anyone alive. And yet one woman and her family get out of that city alive because of their faith and because of their acknowledgement of God and because they came and took shelter and asked for help. And so I believe Boaz was a man who knew the word of God. We see that by the way he lived his life. And I believe he was able to put two and two together and work it out and say, well, yes, the letter of the law is that. But if I look beyond the letter of the law and I try and perceive the spirit behind the law, what is the heart behind the God that gives the law? What would he do in this situation? Well, Jericho was destined for destruction because of its sinfulness, because of its immorality, because of its idolatry, because of its wickedness. But in the midst of that city, there was a woman who lived by faith. Even though she was a prostitute, she lived by faith. She acknowledged the one true God and she asked for help. And she got that help. And here's a woman, a Moabites, who really, again, is not in God's good books because of what that nation has done. But here's a woman who Boaz said earlier, you've come to take shelter under the refuge of God's wings. And so he sees the heart of the matter as opposed to just the letter of the law. And so he concludes that God's greater purposes will be served if he embraces Ruth and protects her rather than rejects her. That's his first conclusion. But then the next question is, how far is he willing to go in walking that out? Because it's okay to say, well, I'll accept her and allow her to glean in my field, but how far does he go? He's got a choice. He can either keep peace with the zealots, because again, it's interesting that we see Ruth, she's not referred to as Ruth for the most part in this book, she's referred to as that Moabite-ess, or that Moabite woman. And it's kind of, it's got... Overtones of bigotry, overtones of racism, overtones of something. These people that seem to know better. They know the law. And so Boaz is faced with a situation. He lives in a community of people that know the law as well. And it may not go down well for him to embrace this woman. So he could just allow her to glean, but just keep her in the background, push her off to the side and make sure that she stays on her own. But he chooses not to do that. He goes the whole hog. He decides to welcome her without reservation. He decides to throw caution to the wind, as it were, and he invites her to join them at the dinner table. And he goes even beyond that, and he himself chooses to serve this woman, this woman who should be an outcast, this woman who should have been sent back home, and he invites her to a dinner, and he, sits, he serves her himself. And he makes a statement both to Ruth and to all those around that, Ruth, you are welcome here. It's an amazing act of acceptance. What about us? See, we live in an age where inclusion and tolerance are actually legislated. They're actually in our laws. We have to be tolerant. We have to be He didn't. He could have just shunned her. Does that mean it's any easier for people living today? 
I think tolerance is cold comfort for those people who live with the silent hatred of racism or religious bigotry. That law doesn't help one little bit for them in their reality. What about social inclusion? What about, you know, you might have a job. That's awesome because of your, you know, the laws legislate that as, a man, as, a, as, as this uh, woman or a, this type of person with that sexual preference or perhaps this cultural background or whatever, that, you know, you cannot be excluded from a job. So you've got a job. That's great. But that's cold comfort if you've never been accepted in the workplace, if you've never been invited around someone's place for dinner. You've never been invited out for a drink. You've never been shown any kindness whatsoever because that's the law. The law is the bottom line. And we're called to live above the law. Boaz accepted. He didn't just tolerate. He didn't just include her. He accepted her without reservation. In our theology, if our theology or our comfort or our reputation or our money or our possessions, if any of that stuff has become an obstacle towards accepting people, I think we need to do some thinking, some rethinking, and reprioritizing in order that we can truly accept and embrace people the way that Boaz did. He put his reputation on the line. It cost him something to embrace this woman. Let's not be guilty, and I think this is the tragedy. Much of the church today is guilty of hiding behind the letter of the law. Choosing not to reflect on the spirit of the law and reflect the spirit of the law. Chatting to someone just last week, and you know, we, we, there are certain people in our town even, and it certainly happens across the world where people get a, a hobby horse and they make it their business to attack certain parts of our society. It might be homosexuals, they get on a bandwagon, they just make it their business to make these people miserable and, and to affirm the fact that they are you know, not God's favourite people and all that sort of stuff. Or maybe they just want to, more generally, just attack any person who's not a Christian. And it's the letter of the law, but is it the spirit behind the law? Maybe it's other religions. Maybe it's people who come from a different part of society than we do. Maybe it's people who've got less money or more money. And we can, we can justify our hatred or our, isolate, our, our rejection of these people through Scripture. And I don't think that's living above the law. Likewise, we can live within the framework of our societal law and not steal and not kill and not speed. And... But again, if it's not done with a warm heart, it's bottom level existence. It's not the existence that God's calling us to. One of the sad outcomes of that is I think that many people perceive Christianity to be an exclusive religion. The reality is you're not going to find a more inclusive faith than Christianity. You're not going to find a more inclusive God or saviour than Jesus. But people make their judgments based on the church. And when we hide behind certain parts of scripture and fail to unpack the, the heart behind it, we come across as being bigoted. We come across as being exclusive. We come across as being intolerant and impatient and miserable and all of that sort of stuff. And nothing could be further from the truth. Acceptance really just says to people, I'm not going to ignore you. I'm glad you're in my world. Let's do life together. It's it's pretty simple, really. 
We can do that to any person. It doesn't matter what their sexual persuasion is. It doesn't matter what their religion is. It doesn't matter what their culture is. It doesn't matter what their station in our society is. It's so easy to do that. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm glad you're in my world. Let's do life together. You know, the law was there ultimately to protect Israel from immorality, from idolatry, that came as a result of multiculturalism. You know, when, when Israel um, diminished their own um, identity and just accepted anything, they hit trouble big time, very quickly. But God didn't institute that law to penalise those who were seeking him out. That's the point I want to make. Ruth was a woman who, yes, she came from a people group that should have and could have been despised. Yes, that people group had done the wrong thing. Yes, there was issues between the nations. But here was a woman who had made a choice to come and find God and live with these people. And so that law, therefore, did not apply to her in the slightest. That's the first thing, acceptance. The second thing that I see uh, whereby Boaz chooses to live above the law is that he seeks to preserve her dignity. He says, let her glean, and even if she goes around the sheaves, even even if she kind of drifts over near all the stuff that's been harvested already and does the old, you know, just sort of gets a bag and starts to put a few, even if she does that, even if she starts to steal, break the law, don't embarrass her. Don't embarrass her. You know, legalism humiliates, but grace elevates. Intentionally or unintentionally, I think it is far too easy for us to humiliate people who are new on the scene. And again, what I'm going to say, some of what I'm saying tonight, um, it's not carte blanche. It's not, it doesn't apply in every situation, but we're talking about a man here who's, it's a new relationship, someone who's new on the scene. And so we're talking about extending grace to those who don't know better, who don't know how things operate, etc., etc. You know, when someone's been around for 10 years, you know, Tom spoke about discipline and correction, all that. So that's totally appropriate in those situations. But you don't start there without a relational bridge that can, can't take any weight. So Boaz, I just love the way that he recognises what Ruth has been through. Here's a woman who, to all intents and purposes, is, is not God's favourite person. Her life, when you look at the external trappings of her life, she's poor. She's lost a husband. She's lost a brother-in-law. She's lost a father-in-law. She's a failure. Surely she is living under the curse of God. She can't really, in the natural, go any lower. And Boaz makes a choice at that moment. And he is determined. You know, We don't know really what her state of mind was or what her emotional well-being was like, but he is determined, if it, as much as it depends on him, I'm not going to let this woman go any lower. I'm going to do all that I can to maintain the dignity that she has and to help elevate her in this situation. He goes further than just giving permission. If she oversteps the mark, if she takes advantage of the grace I'm showing her, don't make a scene. Don't embarrass her. For us today, I think it says this. You know, being hospitable, being generous, being accepting and inclusive... It's risky business. It's risky business. If you open your life up to people, there's a chance that you're going to get hurt. 
There's a chance that you're going to get abused. There's a chance that you're going to get taken advantage of. There's a chance that it's going to cost you something that you weren't banking on. But what I love about Boaz is he's already counted the cost. He's already thought about that. And it's a cost that he was willing to pay for Ruth's sake. If she steals some extra grain, so be it. I don't care. Because I, I sense, a, a, there's a, this, here's a woman created in the image of God. I sense that God has called me to be her protector and a provider. And I will pay whatever it takes to see this woman elevated. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, it says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms. Think about it in your situation. Maybe you've had someone over, and maybe they haven't done the right thing. Maybe they've raided your cupboard when you weren't looking. Maybe their kids have left little presents on your couch. What does love do in that situation? I think Boaz would say to the maid, most of us haven't got maids, but, but don't, don't say anything about this to anyone. Whereas I think often what most Christians do Sadly, is we almost can't get, wait to get out and let them know what happened out. Because I'm a super Christian. You should see what I'm enduring for the gospel. Man, I've got poo on my couch. I've got this. I've got that. And that person, man, be careful if you invite them around. And it's not protecting. It's not not embarrassing. And they go to church next week or whatever, or just maybe they're not even in church yet. They're just part of the friendship circle. And next time they come along, everyone's looking at it a little bit sideways or maybe just having a bit of a laugh behind their back and they've got no idea what it's all about. Prepared to pay a price. I love Les Miserables or, you know, Les Miserables if you're cultured. <laughs> I love the, the, the scene where the priest um, has Jean Valjean into his house and basically, you know, in the night, Jean Valjean steals the silver and he leaves the candles, but he takes all the silverware and he jumps over the fence and he takes off. And in the morning, you know, the maids all are flutter and all ticked off and, and she informs the, the priest that what's happened. And a little bit later on, there's a knock at the door and in come three policemen holding Jean Valjean who's been caught with this silver. And at that point, the priest has a decision to make. He could humiliate the man. He could bring to bear the full weight of the law. Or he could extend the grace of God. And he chooses to extend the grace of God to live above the law. And he accepts the cost of the silver. And he says, yes, I did give him the silver, but I also give him the candles, which he forgot. And he takes the candles and he gives him the candles. And he says, You've made a promise to give your life over. And Jean Valjean thinking, oh, I didn't really give him a promise, but you know, the rest of the story is just an awesome story of conversion, of salvation, of just a man transformed because of the grace of God. And I, just, I think the grace of God is one of the most powerful transforming agents that we can ever experience in our lives. And I think, again, as people come into contact with us, they should be experiencing the grace of God.
and not the judgment of God. They should be experiencing a people that, that cover over sins and don't expose sins. They should be a people experiencing a people that, that are trying to elevate rather than humiliate. How often have we embarked on a good deed that only ends up in feelings of resentment? Because we hadn't counted the cost. Because we did get taken advantage of. Because people do overstay their welcome. Because they do make a mess and their kids do leave presents. Because they don't say thank you. All of that stuff, you know, our best intentions can turn horribly wrong if we haven't counted the cost, if we haven't thought about it, if we haven't decided beforehand to adopt the right attitude. Because we will get used and we will get abused, intentionally or otherwise. So let's not hold it against people. Let's, not, let's ask, ask ourselves, what conditions are we placing on our generosity? Remember that people are worthy of respect and people are worthy of dignity because they're created in the image of God. Satan has done his best to mar that image. He's done his best to degrade people and to dehumanise people. We've talked about that many times from this pulpit. But I think the biggest challenge for us as Christians is to continue to maintain a high view of people, regardless of how much their life has been messed up, regardless of how much they've been caught up in in anti-God cultures or false God cultures or non-God cultures and debauchery and immorality and whatever. You know, how many generations they've been in an unemployment cycle or how, many, you know, how much they have an a, a, um, entitlement culture and all that sort of stuff. The challenge is to see the, the image of God in that person and to respond to that, not to respond out of our own prejudices or bigotry or whatever else. Because there but for the grace, go, grace of God go I. Any one of us could find ourselves in the position of that person that we are tempted to look down upon. And the challenge is not to look down on them, but to help elevate them. When God chose Israel, and later on when he chose the church, I think we need to remember that he didn't choose us because we're better. He chose us because he needs an example in the world. Israel was his chosen people. They were supposed to be a model of what the kingdom of God looked like on earth. It was supposed to be inclusive. It was supposed to be accepting. It was supposed to be kind and gracious. and gener- But it wasn't. For the most part, it just took the law. By the time Jesus came, one of his biggest frustrations was just wading through the nonsense of the Pharisees who had taken 615 laws or 613 laws to thousands upon thousands of laws. All these nitpicky little things that you can't do this and you can't do that and everything else. It was anything but a model of the kingdom of God on earth. But that's God's intention. That's his intention for us today. He wants a living demonstration. I love the way that Boaz was a living demonstration. Here's a woman, she came seeking God and she found him in the face of Boaz. It's amazing. Let's not fall into the trap of looking down in judgment on those on the outer. Let's not embarrass people who in their ignorance, and remember it's often ignorance, and again, it's hard when you're a Christian and, and you know, we come to church every week and we get so much good teaching. For the most part, we know what's right and what's wrong. And we know the culture in this place. We know there are some things that you do and some things that you don't do. And the same with your friends when it comes to your house. They know there are some things that you like and some things you don't like and so they're going to respect those boundaries. 
it's all good when someone's been around for a little while, but for the most part, like Ruth, you know, we're talking about it's the people that come in and don't know that are the challenge to us. How are we going to respond to those who don't know about tidiness? Or how are we going to respond to those who don't know about how to even give a decent apology when they mess up? Because, you know, an apology can be quite a complex thing. You know, say sorry, ask forgiveness. There's, there's things that we teach in our marriage course about what a true apology looks like. But there are people who come into our midst who have never said sorry in their lives. Never, never mind saying sorry properly, you know, like they really mean it, because they just haven't had that environment. They haven't been brought up in that culture. And so we need to just be prepared to take all comers on board. And then if we're accepting, there's a good chance they're going to hang around long enough to actually learn some of the things that we're actually wanting them to learn. They actually make it a lot easier to get along together as the church, as family, as friends, etc., etc. Be gracious, cover up people's sins, and help lift them up. Again, I'm talking about new people. That, you know, as, as, as we, we're expected to grow up in the faith, and we do need the challenge, iron does sharpen iron, etc., etc. But I'm talking about those that are on the outer that we're wanting to bring and include. The third thing that I see in Boaz's life as he lives above the law is that he just goes beyond what's expected. What was expected was very little. At the end of the day, the law provided for those who were in a, in a bad situation. And if you can imagine just going out into the field after the harvests have been through, and whatever's there, you can have. But the harvests have been through. They're getting paid to do what they do, and if they don't do it well, they're going to lose their job. It's like you're going out there, you might be picking up one stalk of wheat or barley at a time. You pick it up, you wander around, you pick up another one, you wander around, you pick up another one, you wander around, you pick up. And if you do that faithfully all day, you might get enough for you and your family to eat that day. And then the next day, you go and you do it again. It's not a way to get ahead in life, gleaning. It's a way to stay alive. It's a way to exist. It's by the grace of God that, that it was there, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. You didn't go into gleaning with massive expectations about a new car and a new house and everything. But Boaz, again, lives above the law. He says, here's this woman. Pull out extra as you go. Make sure she's got plenty to pick up. Keep her busy all day long, just picking up stuff. You know, when we read a little bit later on, I hope I'm not stealing anyone's thunder, but you know, when she goes home to Naomi, she's got enough for about three weeks' worth of food. It's amazing what she's been able to glean in one day. Again, it speaks to the generosity of Boaz. It's always refreshing to get extra, don't you think? Who loves extra? You know, you go with a certain expectation and you get extra, it's good, isn't it? There's one particular ice cream shop I go to, I just sometimes... I don't go there anymore, actually, because they never give extra. <laughs> you know, some ice cream shops, you know, they get the scoop. And, but there's one particular one I go to, or used to go to, and this guy, it's almost like he measures, he puts it in, and he just doesn't want to get anything extra than just what that scoop will hold. He sort of, you'll even scrape off a little extra. And he just puts it in, and you, you pay for a scoop, you get a scoop. But who likes it when you go somewhere and you... You know, you pay for a scoop and you kind of get more than you bargained for. You know, it's like a bit more and then a bit more on top and it's kind of dripping down the sides. It's awesome. Everyone loves that. I love it when you go to a coffee shop and you order a coffee and it comes back and there's a little chocolate on the side. On the... It's extra. It's nice. Boaz gave more than what the law prescribed. 
He gave more than she was entitled to, and he gave more than what she could reasonably expect. Just, that just sounds like the grace of God to me. You know, El Shaddai, one of the words for God, just means the God who is more than enough. The God who is more than sufficient. The God who gives extras. We see his nature and his character expressed in many ways. I love it you know, when Jesus, even when he feeds the 5,000, there's some left over. When, he, when there's the widow in, in um, I think it's 2 Kings chapter 4, and Elisha performs miracles on her behalf in order that she could pay off all her bills. And there's enough left over for her and her son. He's the God who is more than enough. Everything about God, this, this world in which we live in, it speaks of extras. Quickly see if I can find it. I love this little um, quote from, it's from a Sherlock Holmes book. I've read it before. But um, he says this in one, I think it's called the, uh, no, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> Naval Treaty, that's what it is. It says, there is nothing in which deduction is so necessary as in religion. Said here, this is Sherlock Holmes, leaning back against the shutters. It can be built up as an exact science by the reasoner. Our highest assurance of the goodness of providence seems to me to rest in the flowers. All other things, our powers, our desires, our food, are all really necessary for our existence in the first instance. But this rose, he's holding a rose, is an extra. Its smell, its colour are an embellishment of life, not a condition of it. It is only goodness which gives extras. And so I say again that we have much to hope from in the flowers. I love that, just buried away in... Sherlock Holmes book. There you go. We all love extras. Where it's within our power to do so, why don't we determine to be a people who will give extras? Luke chapter 6, verse 32 to 36 says this. Do you think you deserve credit merely for loving those who love you? Even the sinners do that. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, is that so wonderful? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, what good is that? Even sinners will lend to their own kind for a full return. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them. And don't be concerned that they might not repay. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you'll be truly acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and to those who are wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your father is compassionate. God gives people what they don't expect and what they don't deserve. And I think that should be reflected in us as the people of God. People come to church, what do they expect? Tone mentioned this morning to us in, in our meeting before church, he, he said he was chatting to someone who actually doesn't come to church because they're afraid of coming to church. Obviously doesn't have very high expectations of church. And many people might not be fearful of church, but they come sceptical, they come cynical. They might come even willingly, but they often have very high expectations. They certainly don't expect extras. And the reason I know that is because so many people comment on extras. They come and they get a, for the most part, people come to this church, they get a friendly welcome. It's an extra it's not expected at church. Sadly, it's not expected at church, but it's, it's something people comment on. It's a bonus. They get a warm handshake or a hug. Or, it's an extra. 
not necessarily should be an extra, but it is an extra from what they're expecting. They get a complimentary cup of coffee or tea. It's an extra. They get an invitation to a connect group. Or maybe they get invited over for a meal or out for a coffee. It's an extra. It's something they weren't expecting. It's something that says something about the value that has been placed on them as individuals. We can do church without any of those things. We can fulfill the letter of the law. The church is a gathering of believers, gathering together to sing songs to God, to hear the word of God. We can do that and be dull, colourless, boring, ineffective. Or we can radiate the nature and the character of God, which is reflected in extras, things we don't deserve, things we don't expect. What about the people in your world outside of church? What extras do you bring into their world? Maybe it's just encouragement where there's no other encouragement in their lives. Maybe it's support. Maybe it's help, practical help, helping them move house, helping them fix something, whatever. Because you don't get too much for nothing these days. Everyone wants something. Maybe it's access to things. I, I you know, was really blessed. Um, you know, some things I, I probably will never own, but I've had the privilege of being able to use because of some of the connections and friends that I have. And there are things that you have and things that you can share with others and bring a blessing and an extra into their life. Something they may never be able to afford, never even conceive of owning for themselves. But you can be a source of blessing through some of what you have and sharing it with others. I was chatting to um, a, a guy on Friday night and he's just talking about his work situation. And he's just recently saved and since he's been saved, his whole attitude has changed towards work and, and it seems like just the, the favour of God is all over him. But, but I think one of the reasons is extras. He, he, he's in a business where he's, he sells things and he's just taken it upon himself to get, go above and beyond in terms of his service. And so he sells a product and he says, look, I'll, 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 um, I'm happy to come around if you like after work and I'll, I'll have a look at your place and I can come around after and bring some examples of what might look good in your house. It's extra, it's above and beyond. It's not something his boss has made him do. It's, and there's this favour coming his way. Just because he's living in the, out of the overflow of appreciation for God, his whole attitude to work has changed because of his relationship with God. Isn't that the way it should be? I guess that means that we need to be living with enough margin in our lives that we can actually afford some extras. If you're too stressed to raise a smile, you're probably too stressed. (laughs) If you're too financially strapped to be able to buy someone a coffee, you're probably too financially strapped. We did a series a little while ago at Living With Margin. I would encourage you to, to get that and have a listen to that. At least a message. Does our life or do our lives Reflect the fact that we serve a God whose name is the God who is more than enough? Or does it suggest that we serve a God whose name is miserable and stingy? Romans chapter 12, just in finishing, says this, tells us that love, in Romans chapter 13, sorry, verses 8 to 10, just talks about the fact that love fulfills the law. The flip side of that is that the law doesn't fulfill love. Love fulfills the law because it sees that standard and raises it. But the law is always going to fall short of love. The challenge for us is to live in a spirit of love because that's the, that's the spirit with which the law was given. 
initially. The law itself is good, but applied in a legalistic way, without the spirit of love, it becomes a burden rather than a blessing. Jesus had to say to the Pharisees, you guys, you carry up heavy, you weigh up, sorry, you, you tie up heavy loads and you put them on people's shoulders and you don't lift a finger to help them. And religion is like that. It ties up heavy loads, it weighs people down, it burdens them. That's the law. But grace elevates people. Grace frees people. Grace inspires people and gives them hope for the future. One of the things that annoyed Jesus more than anything, I said this before I think, was that during, or the thing that annoyed him most in his time on here on earth is when people deliberately misapplied the law to suit themselves and to penalise others. We could have a great little small club of people that have certain preferences if we like and we could justify it on scripture but we're not here to hide behind the law and protect ourselves from the world we're here to throw open the doors and to see and to and say to anyone who wants to listen anyone who wants to come and that's the key in Ruth's life that she wanted to come in and she was able to therefore to receive the blessing of God let's be like Boaz let's see beyond the law and reach into the heart that we can represent his well, him well. God's heart is to accept. His heart is to restore. His heart is to bless. And I think it would be awesome if our hearts could be something along those lines as well. Can I pray for you? Father, I just want to thank you just for your word. It's challenging at times, Lord God. It, It certainly is something that we need to think about and chew on and ask you to help us to interpret. But I pray, Lord God, as we get together in times like this, that your word would go deep into our lives. And that the next time we're tempted to hide behind the law and live in our preferences or to withhold because it might cost us something, I pray, Lord God, that you would remind us of the great price that you paid for our lives. You came and you held nothing back. And may we as a people be determined to hold nothing back, not just to live to the minimum standard of not killing our neighbour or not stealing from them or not taking off with their wife, but to be a source of blessing and encouragement and to bring hope and life into a world that for the most part is lacking in those things. Help us to be part of the answer in this day and generation, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.